Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the legal system is and has always been. To understand just how rigged the system is, we have to understand a little bit more about the stinking, filthy rich. This episode takes a peek inside their private jet set lifestyle because, as General Sun Tzu said, know thy enemy and know thyself. My name is Mary. I'm an appellate lawyer handling mainly indigent criminal appeals, and I'm here with Professor of Rhetoric Lee Pierce. And today we are looking at how the legal system was rigged to protect the rich and the well-connected. Hello. So glad you're back. Good to be back. Yes. All right, before I connect, before I forget, um, connect with us on social media. Follow May It Displease the Court on Facebook, at Court Pod on Twitter, for updates and our thoughts on the news and current events. Or you can email us at displeasethecourt at gmail.com and let us know what you think. Okay, so back to rich people. Yes, please. Let's do it. What is the point of focusing on them? Well, this podcast looks at the power behind the law. So the law is about the rules that we as a society adopt. We think we can change those rules, but can we? I mean, you can't have an honest discussion about the law without acknowledging and talking about power distribution. The main reason the system is so broken is because it was designed by rich people who rigged the rules to favor them and the people like them, especially when the rich people's priorities come into conflict with poorer people's rights. Yeah, and I think it's good to clarify that when we say rich people, we're not, we're not like talking about like ranch people, right? Like the way that you're, you know, like you're, you have a, a cousin who's rich or you went to school with rich people. Like, you know, like my friend is a neurosurgeon and she makes like a million dollars a year. She's rich, but she's not this kind of rich because we're talking about people so rich. We don't even see them. You have never seen an actual rich, rich person. They don't shop in the stores you shop in. They actually send other people to shop for them, right? You all don't live in the same neighborhoods. Your kids don't ever meet. Like we do not know them and we never, ever see how they live. I don't even think those like TV shows about like elite and gossip girl and all that stuff. I don't even think they get just how rich these people are. Well, and they don't, we don't see it and we don't know it because they hide it. Right. Yeah. They are afraid that there is a mob armed with pitchforks coming for them. They understand that we have collective power. They understand our collective power better than we do. And it's time that we, the people, harnessed our ability to change the rules. Okay? As the French say, liberté, égalité, justice. Is that really it? The entrenched justice is just justice? Justice. I don't know. <laughs> That's I hilarious. To, I have to ask my, my sisters. They live. <laughs> they, are, they are French. Um. Okay. The main point of this episode is that the unchecked accumulation of wealth, creating a vast disparity of wealth distribution, is the single biggest threat to humanity. And we, the people, can unite to stop it. So, tax the rich to save the planet. First, we're going to look at how the rich really live. Second, we're going to look at how, for the rich, crime does pay. And thirdly, we're going to propose a solution. It's a simple solution, it's an obvious solution tax the rich to save the planet. 
Okay, first point. How do these rich people actually live? Well, I am going to use a quote from Bill Gates that I found in Michael Mechanic's book titled Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Get that book. I'll I'll link I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it really delves into a lot. We're going to talk about some of the points he makes, but he goes into a lot more depth. And he's the he's a senior editor for Mother Jones. It's a really great book. Anyway, so a lot of this next section is going to come from that book. So Bill Gates said, "You realize I could spend three million dollars a day every day for the next hundred years, and that's if I don't make another dime." That's crazy. So that's the kind of rich we're talking about. All right. So who are the 1%? You hear the 1%. Well, that's about 1.83 million and they have like 5.6 million and up. Next up is the 0.1%. They have around 29.4 million and 23.4 million is the maximum amount that a couple can pass on to their kids without federal gift or estate taxes. So what do you do with that? amount above 23.4 million, well, that's where you get into, start getting into extreme um, tax avoidance and or you put them in trusts for your children or, or generation skipping trusts for your grandkids. Above that, we have the 0.01%. That's around 18,300 families and they have about 157 million apiece. And above that, we have the 0.001%. 1,830 families, approximately. They have 805 million and above. And what about the bottom 50%? We have about 2% of the wealth collectively. So when you add all of the wealth of the bottom 50%, we, we get about 2% of the wealth. Yeah, I heard a statistic that uh, like a couple of years, I think it was like 2019, Americans spent something like $80 billion on lottery tickets. And, you know, these like, this is poor people, right? Like rich people don't buy lottery tickets. And that's more than the gross domestic product of, I think it was like 75% of the world's nations or like maybe 70%. It was, it was just insane how much like this dream, this trapping dream of wealth keeps like impoverished people just continuously believing that this is something they could ever have in a million years. Right. You think that, oh, this is attainable, you know, yeah. like, I'll just win the lottery, but who wins the lottery? basically no one. Well, even then, even if you did win the, the lottery, that's peanuts. compared. To, you still wouldn't even be in the, you might be in the 1% for like a day. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So Michael Mechanic kind of, he looks through and he talks to rich people and he's trying to understand how much does the wealth actually get you? Like, when are you really privileged? According to his book, real privilege starts to kick in at about the five percenters. And that's when you have what they call net investable assets. At 5%, you have investable assets that are a million more than, like, say, your house. So your house isn't actually going to count. So if you have, like, a million-dollar house, that's not going to, you're not, that's not actual money that you can do something with. So you need to, you, you need to have at least a million dollars that you're, you're able to invest. Then, that's when you really start to get 
privileged. And then there's such a thing called accredited investors, and that's what they call private equity. And those people hold about $29 trillion in combined assets. And that's from 2021. That's a 24% jump from 2016. And most of that jump has gone to the wealthiest 1%. So those people can privately, they could privately buy a company if they wanted to. They have an incredible amount of money that they can play with, essentially. It's not like, and not feel it. They're not going to lose their house. They're not, maybe they have to sell a couple yachts, but it's, you know, it's play money. There's this, did you see that really terrible movie from like 10 years ago with Sandra Bullock? And it was actually really good, but it was corny. It was, um, she like works for him. He's Hugh, Hugh Grant. He's like a millionaire and she works for him. He's like one of the wealthiest people in the world in the, in the movie. And, uh, and at the end of the movie, he gets fired for, you know, standing up for the little people or whatever. And she's like, they fall in love after the movie. And then he's like, okay, I have to let you know that I'm going to be poor now. And she goes, that's okay. I don't care. Cause she, cause in the movie, she, she kind of grew up like not poor, but certainly definitely not in the, in the elite group. And he goes, and by poor, I mean, we may have to share a private jet with another family. And I remember like being furious about that. I was like, don't, that's gross that this movie, like that's gross because it's true. It's right? True. But, like, when, when people like that, they lose money and it, yeah, exactly. Right. They give up one of their 30 vacation homes in Europe or, I, I mean, it's just astronomically disgusting. I've been obsessed with the show Succession on HBO and yes. I mm-hmm. watch it. It's so good. And it explains so much, you know, between that show and and researching for this episode and reading the book Jackpot, I'm like, I think I'm starting to get who these people are and why it is that they just, they don't care about, they don't care about us. They don't care about us as workers. We are fungible, which means we are changeable. We we are indispensable. We are, we are like cogs to them. We are not important. So the U.S. has 4% of the world's population. It has 32% of ultra high net worth individuals that are worth $30 million or more. And these people, these ultra high net worth individuals, about 44% of their wealth is in cash, which are liquid assets. They also have properties and they have luxury items like yachts, private jets, huge collections of fine wines, jewelry, art, high end cars, for example, like a Lamborghini. Aventador for $520,000, a car for $520,000. And this goes to their twin obsessions, the super wealthy, which is privacy and exclusivity. Okay. They want to be away from everybody and behind the velvet rope, everything is is special for them. It's exclusive. It's a concierge service. And that's why we don't see them because that's what they're paying for. Well, and I think too, it's um, it's important to note too that a lot of this stuff isn't stuff because what's crazy about the this is that Chris Rock joke about how the difference between rich and wealthy because like Shaq is rich, Shaquille O'Neal is rich, but the guy that signs his paychecks is wealthy, and that's because their stuff makes them money, right? Like where as our stuff uh, deteriorate, it kind of like um, amortizes. We lose like if I buy a TV today, it's not worth anything. The kinds of stuff that they buy. When they sell it, it's often worth the same, if not more, than it was when they got it. And so they're earning money even as they're spending money. And it's really, it's like something that most of us can't understand because we're so used to when you spend money, it flows out. But for them, it circles back in on on a lot of the stuff that they're buying. I mean, obviously, like food, not so much, but assets for sure. I saw this on Twitter. Like Shaq's paying like 
say 35% in taxes on his hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. But the owner or not Shaq, but anyway, like a big, I don't think it was Shaq, but like a big, like a, big basketball basketball right, player, a major, major celebrity player. athlete that we all think of as rich. Right. Yeah. The owner who's paying, who owns the team and is paying these salaries is paying like 15% in taxes because of all the, they're like writing off all this stuff with the team to reduce their tax loads. So they're, they have, you know, billions in assets. So this is why it was such a big deal when the tax returns came out and it turned out that like the Bidens had paid like fair share, even though they're they're rich, you know, like no doubt about it. They paid at least as much in taxes as like I do. And then Trump paid no taxes for ten, for a decade. So what are they spending their money on? Well, they're spending their money on like a $230 Kobe beef steak or a $1,500 cocktail. Or how about a 21,000 Koa wood bathtub. Now, I had to look up what Koa is because I had no idea. And it's considered the, quote, most spectacular hardwood in the world. It only grows on one set of islands in the world, the big island of Hawaii. And it's very little of it remains because like wild pigs eat the bark and that's like a problem. And so it's usually just existing in a conservation zone where harvesting is is prohibited. But, you know, apparently if you're like super wealthy, you can harvest this like extremely rare endangered wood to make a bathtub. Gross. And I, I looked up another word. It's called bespoke. It's an item that has been designed or manufactured specifically for a client. You didn't know what the word bespoke meant? You know, I like, I, it, you're like okay. a shoe, you're kind of like a shoe lady, right? Like you're into shoes. Sure. I use, I view, I can use the word correctly in context, but I wasn't like, I wasn't able to define it. You know what I mean? Uh, like, to me, it meant like really exclusive. I didn't really know that it was like specifically designed for a person. Mm-hmm. So uh, like a custom suit for $45,000 made out of wild camelids from high in the Andes mountains. Now I didn't, I didn't know it is uh, from the same family as a camel, but it's called like a vicuña or something like it's, it's sort of, it's like a camel, but it's from the Andes. Now, Paul Manafort, he spent $1.4 million on clothes from this guy who makes the $45,000 suits, Alan Couture. And he spent $1.4 million on clothes from this guy from 2008 to 2014. And that included a $15,000 ostrich leather coat. And I remember like what I imagined that coat looked like. I kind of imagined like Paul Manafort sort of looking like a chic big bird. Um, huh? But no, it actually, he looked ridiculous. Uh, it was more like a dystopian big bird. <laughs> That's hilarious. You thought it was ostrich <laughs> I did. I don't know. What, what does it look like? No, it's, that's good. That's very funny. Okay. And then, of course, they're getting high-priced houses, right? So this one California town, Atherton, it has no commercial properties. It has no multifamily homes. It is the highest average house price in uh, in the country. The average house price is over $7 million. Half of the houses have alarms that connect directly to the police department, which is basically functioning as their private security. Can you imagine having the police department is essentially your private security? Ridiculous. This is kind of all bringing me to um, my next point. And that is that for the rich, crime pays. 
High-end home sales that we're talking about these extremely, they're shrouded in secrecy. Real estate agents sign confidentiality agreements. The transactions take place between shell companies. Now, I had to, I wanted to do like a little bit of research so that I could give you a good definition of what a shell company is because you hear it kind of that term thrown around about, but what is it? Well, it's a company that exists only on paper. It has no right. office, no employees. It can be a registered company that sets up other shell companies, which means it just acts as like a vehicle for business transactions. And they can be used for tax evasion, tax avoidance, money laundering, and also anonymity. That's what they like to say. Oh, this is for anonymity. But it also does all these other things. They can be used to shield assets from a spouse or a creditor or a government authority. There are a couple legitimate business purposes for shell companies, like you can transfer assets from one company to another while leaving the liabilities with one with the former company. Of course, while that's technically legal, like is that really ethical? Is that really legitimate? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, Rod, to me, we're like out of the range of any of this being legitimate, legal for sure, but like legitimate. The whole reason a shell company had to be invented is so people could get richer. It has no other. It has no function for like reasonable wealth generation, right? It's only excessive. Right. And you don't know who you're dealing with. So the person selling their home doesn't really know who they're dealing with because they're dealing with a shell company. So they could be dealing mm -hmm. with, they could be selling to Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or a Russian mobster. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what's the difference? The industry, that real estate industry treats new construction um, exactly the same as they do, uh, you know, buying established homes, which is another great area for money laundering. Um, which I should probably define as well. So yeah, that's sex trafficking, since that's what a lot of, sometimes that's a lot of what these homes are used for, right? And then they're sold off before people can identify the wallpaper. Right. Mm -hmm. So money laundering, it's the illegal process of hiding the origins of the money. So which is, which was obtained illegally. And they send the money through a complex sequence of banking transactions or commercial transactions with the goal of, quote, cleaning the money so you can't easily figure out that it was mob money or drug money or human trafficking money, as you were saying. So shell companies are a great tool for money laundering and the real estate market asks no questions about it. So then they apparently have no, no ethics to look into this. So they're kind of like a perfect combination. And a lot of these homes have absentee ownership in these wealthy areas. If you go in Beverly Hills, most of those houses are empty or the, or the Hollywood Hills. There's like, people aren't there. Multi-million dollar condos, they're going to pay tons of money and they're going to own the disgustingly rich. They're going to own maybe five of these properties all over the world so that they just, you know, they have a place to stay when they want to pop over in their private jet to see the ballet or NBA finals. Another benefit is that foreign real estate investors can use huge real estate purchases to get a green card under the immigration's EB-5 visa program created in Congress by 1990, think early H.W. Bush days, foreigners who invested around 900000 in a targeted employment area was fast-tracked for permanent residency. Now, shockingly, this program was riddled with corruption. Um, it was designed to bring jobs into poor areas, but who wants to live in poor areas, mm. right? So maps were gerrymandered, which means they were drawn um, specifically to include wealthy areas so developers could use money for upscale properties. Jared Kushner, 
use the EB-5s to try to entice the Chinese into the and and to, into these opportunity zones and, you know, claim that they were being, Trump was claiming, oh, they're being used to help poor people when really they were just a way for the rich to legally launder money by putting it into these opportunity zones that really weren't opportunity zones. The rich, they don't get prosecuted for the crimes that they commit. And if they do get prosecuted, they receive lighter sentences. As Alex Carrot Casadas stated in his book, Usual Cruelty, we have to examine why the punishment system exists and how it functioned throughout history as a mechanism of preserving white supremacy and the distribution of economic wealth and social control. In his book, he also cited how the IRS chief warned that unpaid taxes could reach $1 trillion a year, and yet the IRS is not spending time or resources making sure that wealthy Americans pay their taxes. You know, the point being that the wealthy, when they make, when the super wealthy commit a crime, it's a big crime, really big, like lots and lots of money. For example, Bernie Madoff, he ran the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. He masterminded this biggest investment fraud, which he ran for 40 years. So he pled in, 20, in 2009 to a scheme that investors think he started in the early 70s. It defrauded more than 40,000 people in 125 countries for as much of, as like $65 billion. He served a 150-year prison sentence. He died in prison. But he was an old man by the time he, you know, 40 years he had been doing this. He had you know, 40,000 victims, including like Steven Spielberg, Kevin Bacon, uh, the New York Mets owner, the Nobel Prize peace winner, Ellie Weisel, and then thousands of ordinary investors. In court, Madoff insisted that it was all his idea. His family didn't know anything, even though his wife, Ruth, once kept the books for his for his uh, investment fund. His sons were senior officers. His younger brother was the chief compliance officer. You know, give me a break. Mm. And, the, you know, many of the victims of this fraud could no longer live independently. They couldn't meet their health care needs for themselves or their spouses, care for children or grandchildren. I mean, they couldn't provide for their basic needs. I mean, he these are thousands of victims. Another example is the Sackler family. They started Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma, uh, you know, they're the ones who produced OxyContin and had this huge marketing scheme to get regular people addicted to pain medicine by making it seem as if their drug was something that you couldn't be addicted to, which is a lie. The cost of the opioid, you know, they kind of launched the opioid crisis, which according to the CDC cost, let's see, $1,201 billion and 47,000 of thousand people died of an overdose just in 2017 and another 2 million were met the criteria for being dependent on opioids. Purdue Pharma has been prosecuted. They pled guilty to a felony. Okay, so they they were given an 8 million dollar uh, you know judgment that they have to pay for that or you know restitution, but the company is in bankruptcy. So in order for them to pay they're going to have to sell more opioids in order to pay back the people that they've killed from opioids. So there's that. There's also the, the Sackler family. 
their net total assets approximate $11 billion. There's just been a settlement from that five state attorneys general agreed to where they'll give $4.5 billion to be paid by the company's owners. And these are the descendants of these three Sackler brothers who founded Purdue. They get to take $6.5 billion with them, and they refused to take any responsibility or to apologize. This is their statement. The resolution to, to the mediation is an important step towards providing substantial resources for people and communities in need. The Sackler family hopes these funds will help achieve that goal. So they're going to pay $4.5 billion. They're going to keep $6.5 billion. And it cost $1,201 billion. Okay, so who's picking up the rest of that cost? Americans, taxpayers. And they get they still get to have six point five billion to run around and be rich. And as we know from you know Michael Mechanic, they're still in that influential category where they can do basically whatever they want. Well, what about poor people? Well, as we know, they get hammered by the system. And I think the best example of that is this Facebook post that I read from a former colleague. We were both public defenders uh, at a time, and she was outraged at how the lawyers for the CEO of the Trump organization, Alan Weiselberg, they were his lawyers were whining that, you know, it's some sort of malicious prosecution for him to be charged with a one point seven million dollar tax fraud that they think should have been pursued civilly. They should have just pursued civil damages. Now, she was contrasting that with her client who was charged with a petty larceny for taking a cup of coffee from a hotel lobby that he wasn't oh staying God. in. Petty larceny? Are you serious? Right. So think about that. The, the hotel put out the coffee for people to, to, to drink, and this guy was charged with taking that. And so you have a police officer, police officers that were called, they came, they're, they're being sal- they're salaried. So they spent their time right, arresting this person, writing up the paperwork, filing it with the district attorney's office. They put this person probably in jail. So the jails, uh, you know, there's money spent on that. Then you have the, the district attorney, they're spending time on this case. He was assigned a public defender. Resources were being spent there. The, also the the court staff and the judges, all for a cup of coffee that the hotel voluntarily put out for people right, to take. Right. Okay. So that's just, you know, an example of the, the different resources that, you know, how we as a society spend resources to go after what? A cup of coffee that arguably shouldn't have been ever considered a crime? Or billions of dollars that super wealthy, you know, rich people and corporations take and the Sacklers have blood on their hands for hundreds of thousands of people, ruining millions of families. You would think that police and prosecutors who project this image of being tough on crime, that they're focused on law and order, that they would care about the big crimes, not the little crimes, but they don't. They ignore the crimes committed by rich people like tax evasion, corporate theft, wage theft, fraud, vast criminal conspiracies to distribute narcotics, you know, around the country and create millions of addicts. Police and prosecutors, they don't they don't go after them. Instead, 
They shift the public's attention to individual crimes like assaults, smaller thefts, drug dealing, the drug dealers on the street, and they choose to wield the power of the state against the poor. And this is a distraction. The rich, however, they use their money to influence what the law is. They influence who writes and passes the laws. They make big donations so that, you know, they can pick up the phone and get an audience with lawmakers or they have the ability to hire lobbyists to do that work for them. That's how the system is rigged. And that's, you know, the main problem that we have as regular people subsisting in the bottom 50% is how do we how do we combat that? How are our voices heard? You know, how are we considered equal members of a society that concentrates so much wealth in the hands of so well, few? Well, I think this is important too, right? Because when people harp, when, you know, when the far right harps on and on about the constitution, the constitution was built around antitrust, right? Like this isn't supposed to happen. I mean, it, it certainly like rich people are supposed to be rich, but the kind of wealth that's been amassed over the last, you know, pretty much post-industrial revolution, even the last just like 50 years, I think, I think I read somewhere that the difference between like the top CEO of a company and the frontline worker used to be something like seven to one in terms of earnings. And now it's something like 300 to one. I don't have the exact site, but yeah. so it's, it's written into very early constitutional principles, right? That antitrust, anti-monopoly is supposed to be a cornerstone of the democracy because even though the, the constitution was written by rich assholes, they still knew that you couldn't have people buying democracy or it would be a problem. Like they didn't mind everybody getting like rich, obviously off like slave labor, but they still knew that you couldn't basically have a, an, arist an aristocracy, that, that you couldn't run a democratic aristocracy. And so anytime someone cites the constitution, all of this stuff being able to happen isn't like rewarding people for their hard work or rewarding the innovation of Jeff Bezos, right? It's just straight monopoly trust. And what they've been doing, the ultra-wealthy have been putting a lot of time and effort into essentially propaganda to get people to rethink and undo these concepts of what's, you know, fair compensation for labor and what it means to have regulations and antitrust exactly and, and, you know, breaking up of monopolies. And so that's, they've been very successful. And that's, you know, we're seeing that kind of concentration of wealth, you know, that's got us to where we pass those laws in the first place. Michael Mechanic's book was made some, you know, spent a lot of time focusing on on the psychological costs of being filthy rich. He points out that it's miserable because everybody wants something and you have transactional relationships with even family and children. And that no matter how much wealth any of them accumulated, they never considered themselves financially secure. And that was people that were born wealthy. And that's also people that, you know, started up businesses and kind of hit the jackpot and, and sold them and became super wealthy. They all, once they achieved a certain amount of wealth, they all got very concerned with keeping it and mm -hmm. growing it. Now, this there's a study um, by Princeton University uh, done by economist Angus Deaton and psychologist Daniel Kahneman that, you know, they say that the lower a person's annual income falls below a certain level, then they're, they become, they're unhappy. But no matter how much more you make above $75,000, they don't get any happier. So it's like this idea that like $75,000 is like 
the peak of happiness. Like anything above that, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be any more happy. I'm not sure that that's true in a in a place where you like in a big city where it has high cost of living. Because I can tell you, seventy five thousand dollars in a big city doesn't feel like a lot of money. Yeah, I was gonna say seventy five seems low to me for like New York or Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean that was in 2010, so perhaps it would go up. But even still, yeah. What what can we gather from from all of this stuff about you know rich people being unhappy? Well, real quick, I just want to say I worry a touch about not that I worry about it. I the data is I like I believe in the data and I understand the argument that there's sort of a diminishing return of happiness as people get wealthier. But I think also we want to be careful about how we interpret that statement because my interpretation of it is that entitlement and you know like abusing systems and people for your own benefit is fundamentally unethical and anathema to human happiness, right? The humans as, as like as a species are just not meant to do this to each other. And so when you, when you are a person who exploits and takes and feels entitled to and distance from, and just like treats everybody else like objects and treats the earth, like your own like private playground, right? That of course you're going to be unhappy, but I don't then also feel bad for these people. Right. I'm not like sad that they're unhappy. I don't feel like because I mean, and I think this is something that gets perpetuated in the media a lot when, when like, these rich playboys are like deeply wounded inside. And it because it, it's designed to get the rest of us to sympathize with them. Right. Because if you're not willing to believe that they've earned this, right, that Jeff Bezos has the right to be this rich when most of his profits of the last two years have been driven by the destruction of covid and he should have to give all of that money back. Um, if they can't get you to buy that argument that like Bezos deserves the money, which many people believe that, right? But but the other way they can get to you is through empathy. So it's important that we don't buy the first argument, but that also that this doesn't turn into sympathy because just because we're saying they're unhappy, that's a statement about how what they're doing, I think is unnatural. Like it goes against the way that, that human societies function best. Not that I'm like, I feel bad for them that they're so burdened by their richness. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Uh, to me, I see it as, yes, I think that's a, that's a risk. I see it as they're addicts. They're addicted to wealth. They're addicted mm-hmm. to wealth mm-hmm. uh, accumulation. And they're, they're people that have no backstop. They're, they have no, they have no off switch to their appetite. And they will, you know, it's like they have yeah. Prater Willie sy- syndrome for wealth. They will eat themselves. Well, to think death. about how we treat addicts in this society, right? We, we are sympathetic to what's going on with them, but we want them to get help slash be held accountable for the fact that like it's illegal to to do a lot of the things that addicts do and we don't like sit around and go oh well i guess we'll just enforce their addiction because they're not happy anyway you know what i mean like you would never treat someone that way and so it's just weird i think it's interesting to me how some of the logics that we would apply to like the regular working person somehow become changed when we start to think about wealthy people and that's the whole way that our ideological culture has been designed to just keep rich people insulated from criticism well, we could also look at them like uh, like we do certain criminals, you know, they will not stop unless right, there is a boundary and the boundary is the law. So you can make a law you can set. We can yep. set a boundary as a society that, you know, above a certain level, you are you will be taxed again. Getting to my last point, what's a super obvious and perhaps maybe humane thing to do to people who cannot stop accumulating wealth? Tax the rich. Okay, let's listen to Elizabeth Warren explain it, and we're just going to play her clip. 
Remember the way that the wealth tax is built. It says if your fortune is below $50 million, nothing. We're not talking to you. If it's above 50 million, your 50 millionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in two cents, two cents for every dollar above that. You hit a billion dollars in assets. You got to pitch in a few pennies more. The nice thing about the way it's set up is we learned from some of the mistakes they made in Europe. So this version of the wealth tax says it covers all of your property. Doesn't matter whether it's held in uh, stock or in real estate or in racehorses. Everything is covered, so there's no point in moving property around. Also, wherever you hold it, it is covered, whether you hold it here in the U.S., whether you hold it in the Cayman Islands. And remember, we are already valuing property. We do it at death. We value all real estate every year for real estate taxes. And valuing stock is not very hard. So I think we've kind of got the the implementation part of this locked down. Okay, I think that we have proven that the deadliest of the seven deadly sins is avarice or greed. The accumulation of Mm. gobs and gobs of wealth derived from unpaid labor of the masses. And they're clearly not going to give it away because if they were going to give it away, they would have already done it. Right, absolutely, yep. So this whole argument that like, oh, philanthropy, they're just going to do that. You know, there are the ones who have, there are very few that have signed the giving pledge. I think Warren Buffett is one of them. Maybe Bill Gates has where they're saying like, okay, well, the vast majority of the money I'm going to give away, but I'm going to do it when I die. Mm -hmm. You know what that's all about? Power. They want to have the power that all of that money has during their life. So they want to give it to the to the issues that they that they're interested in, but they're not interested in in all of the aspects of running a society, which is what taxes do. They go to the the funds and then they're distributed all the way you know through all the different levels of society. So the the super rich that want to just keep all their money until they die, they're all about power and control too. So you have to look at it that way. You know they're not that great, even if they give it all the way all the way in the end. What do we know? They're miserable. And to benefit them and us, we need to tax the rich to save mm-hmm. the planet. All right. Thank you for listening and check back in for another fascinating episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.